0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, prostaglandin analogs, risks, benefits, alternatives.
1: The studies showed when we, when we synthesized them that the and bimatoprost were pretty much equally efficacious, but the adverse events
0: were higher in the bromonidine. First this. In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here, requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Hodge declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Are you going to the ASCRS annual meeting in Chicago this month? Come and meet me. I'll be presenting a paper on April 8th in Session 4E and giving a course that afternoon. The course is a kind of workshop on podcast creation And on using Web 2.0 tools like wikis and blogs. You can't miss me. I look just how I sound. We've discussed glaucoma diagnosis and surgical therapy with a high degree of granularity. But when it comes to medical therapy, this podcast has painted in pretty broad strokes. Not today. My guest is William Hodge, and he's just published results of a study examining the efficacy and harm of prostaglandin analogs in comparison to dorzolamide and bromonidine. Want to know how things stack up? So did I. To provide some scale by which we can compare the efficacy of these medications, what level of intraocular pressure reduction is recommended by the AAO and by the European Glaucoma Society?
1: Well, there are... Talking about 20 or 30% um, reduction from baseline is, you know, ideal. The reality is, though, if you look at the AGES studies, even one millimeter reduction in the long term can be important. When you look at trials that compare average uh, pressures of, of a lot of patients, often 1 or 2 millimeters is all you really get. So, uh, and that's how we really judge the efficacy of the drug. And any one patient, we'd like to see twenty or thirty percent reduction from baseline. But for these studies, even one millimeter, and certainly more than one millimeter on average, can be important.
0: What did the Aegis study recommend with regard to intraocular pressure reduction? It's a little bit different from what we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the um, Aegis, you know, wanted the. It felt that a pressure of even uh, one millimeter reduction could, in the long run, be be important in terms of uh, in terms of you know optic nerve and opti- you know optic nerve anatomy and so on.
0: And they're finding with regard to uh, kind of a cutoff of eighteen millimeters of mercury,
1: right? And the eighteen millimeters also is uh, because it's not a normal distribution, so they felt eighteen might be a. A suggestion. You know, of course, everyone, every patient. Another thing that's done commonly, at least in Canada from a consensus guideline, is to try to look at a target pressure. So you wouldn't necessarily say 18 for sure, but 18 is, you know, is one of their recommendations to put in the, in the forefront of your mind. That's right.
0: What are the classes of medication for IOP reduction and what are their mechanisms of action? So we have beta blockers.
1: They reduce um, aqueous production and we have the um, the alpha agonists and they reduce uh, production and probably a uh, a little bit on the outflow side as well. We have um, the prostaglandin analogs, and they they increase uveal scleral outflow through a few different mechanisms, maybe directly and probably uh, biochemically. We have the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that um, uh, that uh, also reduce production, and we have a few other more or less old timers like pilocarpine, and uh, uh, but uh, they they aren't used as much anymore.
0: Bill, can I get you to discuss in a little more detail the mechanism of action of the prostaglandin analogs?
1: Well, the prostaglandin analogs felt that they increase the outflow of, um, of of aqueous, and they probably do by upgrading enzymes called metalloproteinases, which, which are felt to uh, the theory is that they keep the trabecular meshwork um, open, probably by enzymatically modifying the pores in some way through the perhaps some chemicals in the walls of the trabecular meshwork. And by operating the, the uh, these metalloproteinases, it's felt that basically the pores in the trabecular meshwork are probably kept open and healthier. And in general terms, they're felt to upregulate uh, those enzymes.
0: And there's some evidence that they have some action on ciliary body tension too.
1: Ciliary body tension and also probably some direct action on uveal scleral outflow as well. Um, so there's probably a few different ways they work.
0: What evidence existed prior to this study to suggest that prostaglandin analogs might cause harm?
1: One of the issues with respect to ophthalmology is that they may may increase inflammation. And so that perhaps could cause harm in a few different ways, maybe maybe even in glaucoma, but in other ways as well. Um, For instance, uh, uveitis or cystoid macular edema. And um, so that's that's still a a bit of a concern overall. so in any systematic review like this, you would always compare efficacy and harm sort of routinely, Routinely, even if even if there were no, even if a priori, you know, you didn't even have an idea that there might be, you'd always look at both that efficacy and harm to give the, you know, to give the most unbiased estimate of the medication.
0: But when you're talking about harm, can you give me some examples of what might constitute harm in this context?
1: Yeah, it could be any. I think for prostaglandins, I think uh, the, uh, in, the pro-inflammation is what we would be most concerned about. Of course, a lot of other minor things like, guys oh, just being red and irritated. Um, so that's what we'd be most uh, most worried about. But we, it's important to you know we'd go through a systematic review like this with an open mind, you know, without any a priori. Uh, I mean, we, of course, know the drugs a bit, so we do have some a priori ideas, but we, we'd always go through a systematic review like this with an open mind that, for any drug or drug category, we'd say, okay, let's make sure we review their benefits and their harm. Let's look at the numbers needed to treat and numbers needed to harm. So uh, we really keep an open mind, even if we didn't have, you know, a priori ideas as to what good or bad they might do.
0: Can I get you to describe the design of your study?
1: Well, this is a systematic review, and systematic reviews in ophthalmology are a little bit, I think, behind the times compared to other fields, but they're, they're very important and they're becoming more and more important um, all over the place in medicine. And what a systematic review does is it's more or less an information management study. It says there, there's evidence out there, usually randomized trials, but it could be other 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 types of um, evidence, uh, other types of study designs. And they're out there and they're kind of floating around in the water and floating around in midair. but now someone for some particular reason, usually there's a payer that says we want to know what the result is synthesized. We want one answer. We see this seven trials and 23 other non-trials, and we see this basic science studies, and, and usually some payer, for some reasons says we want the answer synthesized into one answer, um, because we have to make some policy decision um, um, based on this one answer. And the payer can be a clinical payer, a hospital, it can be a government, it can be HMO, it can be whatever, but usually there's a payer that wants some um, that done. So the systematic review in, in some ways tries to... And, and one way or another try to systematically synthesize all the information out there. And usually the, it's based mostly on randomized clinical trials, mainly because the methodology for reviewing, for systematically synthesizing non-randomized trials, isn't that good and isn't that agreed upon? So we usually try to, do, try to use um, randomized trials and, 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 and synthesize the evidence for the, for the payer. Um, sometimes we, we have to do non-randomized trials and we give a qualitative review, but that's in general, you know, a little bit unsatisfactory if that's all we can do. In this study, we were able to, we were able to um, synthesize randomized trials for the payer.
0: Bill, what is the Jadad scale?
1: So the Jadad scale is a is a uh, in a systematic review. It's important to realize that if two different people did the systematic review the same, they would come to the same answer. And um, so it's not a narrative view. It's not an opinion piece. It's not someone kind of doing their best to put things together, and. Um, um, we recently did a systematic review on wait time for cataract surgeries, and the, the payer uh, provided um, um, two provided money for two people, two groups to do it. And we came to virtually identical answers. We presented at the same meeting, and, the, uh, and we, we we came to virtually identical answers. So that's done because there are very um, uh, there are very rigorous ways to 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 do the review. And one of them is to is to assess the quality of a randomized trial. So a Jadad scale. Is one of those scales that assesses the quality of a randomized trials. So in every systematic review, not only is there a quantitative um, synthesis of everything, but also the um, the trials are all evaluated with this Jadad scale. And it basically looks at th- uh, three or four parts of a randomized trial. And if it's if it's mentioned in, in the study that it was done, then it's given a check yes. And if it isn't, it's given a check no. And the total is out of five. And you know, it's considered good studies or... Three or above, the higher the better, and under three are considered poor randomized trials. Although well, they're still randomized trials, and maybe part of it was done, so we still include them. Some people feel you should adjust the final answer for the JADAT scale, so if you, you should weigh the, the better studies a little heavier. Most people don't in systematic review methodology feel that, so, so we didn't. Um, but there are some people who think you should, you should weigh the higher JADAT scores a little heavier in your final, in your final um, numerical value. We didn't do that. Most people don't do that. But that's what the scale is.
0: What were your inclusion and exclusion criteria for this study?
1: Yeah, so the inclusion criteria were that people had to be, we had to find a randomized trial. So now again, we're, when, we, when you do a systematic review, we include and exclude studies, not patients. So the unit of study isn't a molecule or a cell it, or even a person. It's actually just study. So the unit of study are studies. And we included studies that where people were over 18 with high intraocular pressure and at least one of the interventions had to be a prostaglandin because our payer wanted us to look at prostaglandin versus other drugs. And um, uh, we had to include a, a treatment of we included the treatment of naive patients or patients who had received an appropriate washout period prior to treatment. And uh, basically, those individuals we didn't meet, a study that didn't meet those inclusion criteria were excluded. Basically,
0: you mentioned the payer. Who was the payer for this study?
1: Yeah, the, the payer was basically the Canadian government, who paid, uh, who, who basically asked what's called the Canadian Agency for Drug Health Technology to do this study. And the reason was that um, the Canadian government wanted to decide if prostaglandin should go on what's called the formulary, which means the the the, the government will pay a significant or all of the uh, drug costs for patients who meet certain criteria. If it's not on the formulary, the patients have to pay themselves. But the, the government would like to see enough high-quality evidence so that the drug should go on the formulary. So the government asked the Canadian Agency for Drug Health Technology to do this, and they asked me to be the clinical lead on it. So that's basically who the
0: payer was this time. You employed Cochrane Software, but you did not query the Cochrane Database?
1: Yeah, the Cochrane Database, um, I believe, was part of the um, uh, part of the search strategy. I'm almost certain it was. Yeah, they, We had information technologists do that, so it's not right off the tip of my fingers, but I remember reviewing it tonight just for this, uh, and I'm pretty sure that we reviewed the Cochrane database.
0: Let's break down your results. What did you find when comparing latanoprost to bromonidine?
1: The studies showed when we when we synthesized them that latanoprost and bromonidine were pretty much equally efficacious um, in the trials. I think there were three formal trials that looked at and they looked at that, and they were pretty much efficacious, but the adverse events were higher in the bromonidine. And uh, most of those adverse events were severe allergy. Um, they weren't really, they weren't any brutal life-threatening events, but they were severe allergy requiring patients to um, stop the drug. So when it came to xalatan um, versus bromonidine, the efficacy was very similar from the, from the trials, but xalatan seemed to win out, if we can say that, based on adverse events and that um, the adverse events were higher in the, um, the bromonidine group.
0: What about latanoprost versus dorzolamide?
1: Right. So, latanoprost versus dorzolamide, uh, it it turned out that latanoprost was much more efficacious. I think by over two millimeter mercury drop. So, in this case, latanoprost was basically a better drug based on efficacy. And I think most people felt that, you know, that sort of. I think most people. I'm not a glaucoma subspecialist myself, but you know, I do take care of a lot of glaucoma patients because of my subspecialty. And I think most people sort of on the street or just from reading individual trials felt that was the case, and that's what the systematic review
0: showed. What constituted an adverse event, and how did the different groups compare?
1: So an adverse event, is, is when we do these reviews, is, is, is broadly defined. We, we'll let the study define it. Um, and, and so they're broad, and virtually anytime time any adverse event is mentioned, we'll, we'll count it. And if it's a severe adverse event, usually that means they have to stop the drop or stop the drug. Uh, with the xalatan um, and Alfagan group, uh, the the adverse events were about the same. the adverse events were 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 greater for Alfagan, but against orzolamide they were um, quite similar. I can't remember the exact details, but that they they panned out to be quite similar uh, between those two drugs. But the efficacy was different with them um, uh, against orzolamide.
0: Did you look at second line therapy?
1: Only in one study. So it's a study that compared uh, latanoprost with Alfagan, uh, in who already. Um, Failed one other monotherapy, and patients did a little better with the um, uh, with the it uh, with Zalatan in terms of getting a 20 percent reduction in IOP from baseline. So um, that was one study that the seventh RCT. Uh, it couldn't be you know quantified and couldn't it couldn't be brought into the main meta-analysis because it's a whole it's a whole different question. But that was the um, that was the study we found for second line
0: therapy. When you say it's the seventh RCT, it's the seventh randomized control trial. Exactly. Yeah. The differences in efficacy between some of these medications is small. Let me ask you, how significant is a one millimeter of mercury difference? It's a, it's a
1: great question. I think one millimeter in any one patient, especially in the short term, probably doesn't matter much. One millimeter, though, with a whole bunch of patients on, on an average in a study matters more, and more than one millimeter in a whole bunch of patients in a study, like two millimeters or more, which I think was the result against azolamide, probably matters a lot. I mean, we've also done primary studies ourselves looking at ALT versus SLT, two lasers for glaucoma, and um, anything over one millimeter we considered important when we were looking at binary outcomes. So in a a study, one millimeter probably counts for something, and, and more than one definitely counts for a lot when we're averaging over all these patients. Again, any one patient, one millimeter at any one visit isn't a big deal, but on average in these studies, one is, I think, important, and more than one is very
0: important. Bill, how important in a clinical setting are these adverse events?
1: The, the adverse events, they're important because they're not life-threatening, they're not vision-threatening, but we know they're important in glaucoma because if someone has an allergy, usually we would stop because even a local allergy is important enough to stop the drug. But if someone even has a lot of hyperemia, you know, we know that it affects compliance a lot, and so um, because patients have to stay on glaucoma drugs sometimes two and three for years and years, and, and it's cumbersome, and they may have all kinds of other pills to take, and, and we know that if, if it's not going smoothly for them, they often stop the drug. So, you know, the adverse events, they're not life-threatening adverse events, that's for sure, but they can still affect the disease because we know it affects compliance for the patient.
0: Did any of these studies stratify comparisons by race, and what do we know about this generally?
1: Some of them do, but for the systematic review... Uh, We we didn't um, um, uh, go over that in detail. We know that people who are of African heritage race do have a lot more trouble with opening glaucoma than Caucasian people. There's no question. It's like five or six times, you know, uh, they're higher risk and so on. So we know that that they um, are more affected and um, individually, um, in any one study, um i'm sure that at least a few of them did stratify by race at least the ones that two that in the united states that ended up in the last um, in in the final seven uh, but we didn't stratify in the final analysis because there weren't really enough patients to um to you know make that a significant um you know make that a significant analysis for us but in general terms that's an important point in any one
0: study what do we do with these findings should we be less concerned with latanoprost because its adverse events are no greater than bromanidines?
1: I think so, yeah. I definitely think so, yeah.
0: What should the role of dorzolamide be?
1: Yeah, so I think it should be an adjuvant. You know, I think dorzolamide in a clinical practice uh, is kind of the modern-day equivalent of propene that we used to use uh, 20 years ago where it's, it's probably a good adjuvant. It can probably bring pressure down a little bit in someone whose target pressure may be a little high, but it probably doesn't make sense to be a first line therapy for most people unless other drugs are contraindicated because of uh, side effects in a particular patient.
0: Bill, what do you do in your own practice? In my own
1: practice, it's a little tricky. We haven't talked much about beta blockers because beta blockers are coming in another area, are, I've are, been published has are, are, been published in terms of cost-effectiveness effect, uh, in a different study and their efficacy in, in, is is impressed in a different study. So we haven't talked about beta-blockers and they're, they're a big, big component of this that we haven't talked about and it's it's going to be uh, published in a different study. But the issue really comes down to, I think, beta-blocker versus um, versus prostaglandin to be first-line therapy. My practice is different because I do a lot of uveitis and cornea and, and, the, and the cornea patients are on a lot of steroids so they have high pressure and and they can get CME. So because they can get CME and I have a lot of uveitis in my practice, I tend to use beta blockers first. But I think for a lot of people in practice, it's a bit of a toss-up between beta blockers and prostaglandins first. And um, prostaglandins might be a little more efficacious, but beta blockers are a little bit more cost-effective. And it's a little controversial which would be first. In my practice, it's probably a beta blocker first just because of the nature of my practice.
0: Bill Hodge, thank you so much.
1: Well, no problem. Yeah, thanks for calling, and I hope, uh, I hope it uh, ends up being something useful for some people.
0: William Hodge is Professor of Ophthalmology and Epidemiology at the University of Ottawa Eye Institute in Ottawa, Ontario. His paper, The Efficacy and Harm of Prostaglandin Analogues for IOP Reduction in Glaucoma Patients Compared to Dorzolamide and Bramonidine, A Systematic Review appears in the January 2008 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Hodge or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808 0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 20 8275 Or Skype, J Young, MD. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.